Hello and welcome to Policy Voices by Friends of Europe, an independent think tank with a difference. Each week from Brussels, we bring you powerful conversations with policy voices from around the world. Policy Voices talking policy choices. Have I been subject to racial profiling? Sometimes, actually, uh, I don't think about it in more detail. I would tell you, well, no, I haven't been racially profiled. But then if you dig a bit deeper and you, you kind of go back into your, into your past, you're like, well, actually, I have been witness to a lot of racial profiling. I have also been subject to it, but you just don't think about it. Sometimes it's better to just leave it behind as opposed to, to dwell upon it. I'm Katerina Villanova, host of Policy Voices. Nearly half of people of African descent living in Europe said they have been victims of racial discrimination. The shocking but perhaps not surprising figure came out of the report Being Black in the EU by the European Union Agency for Fundamental Rights. Racism is at an all-time high in Europe, with discrimination rising 6% since 2016, but less than 10% of people reported these crimes. To help me unpack these facts and figures, I sat down with Kim Smalter, director of the European Network Against Racism. Here's my conversation with Kim. Hi, Kim. Thank you so much for joining Policy Voices. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you very much for having me. I would like to start by asking you, what is your first reaction when this report, Being Black in the EU by the European Union Agency for Fundamental Rights, came out? Were you at all surprised by the findings or were you shocked but not surprised? Um, I think for, for myself and also I think for, for all of us at the European Network Against Racism, I, I think what we... Our, our feeling was that we we kind of knew that what the report was saying was true, uh, and now we just kind of, in essence, have evidence backing up kind of what we've been experiencing for the last kind of years, which is very much a, on the one hand, I think, a heightened awareness around these issues, but at the same time, also a, a heightened kind of a political environment, in essence, which heightens the ability for these kinds of things to happen. So, I, so for us, it was not a, a surprising report. Shocking, yes, but but not surprising. So, would you say that the findings that um, that Fra uh, put in this report align with the work that uh, NR has been developing as well? Um, certainly. So, so I think for us, it it, it gives us a bit of a picture, uh, a snapshot of kind of what is happening. It's not the whole picture, and I think that's also something which is really important, kind of when analyzing the Fra report, is that of course it's things which are which people have been willing to declare, but there is. Also, an aspect with regards to a lot of a lot of things, a lot of things that happen on day to day, which do not get reported, and I think that underreporting is still very symptomatic. And I think what Fra is only is, is showing is probably the tip of a of a much bigger iceberg. And on a more personal level, could you tell us what resonated with you the most? Of course, the report details very lots of instances of discrimination that people of African descent experience in all walks of life, from uh, applying for jobs, for housing, from uh, walking in the streets and interactions with the police. Was something that resonated more with you on a personal level? All of the above <laughs> is probably the easiest way to respond to that. Um, and also, I think that that is something which is experienced by by, by many of my, my family members, uh, whether it be extended or, or, or immediate. Um, and, and we definitely experience all of that in day in, day out. Um, and I think what the report is, is quite good at showing, at least, is that the, 
the the kinds of the very mundane kind of experiences. And but I think what we need to kind of then explore much more is all of these are manifestations of something which is quite structural and quite systemic. And what impact does that have on on blacks in general? And what can, what kind of impact it has on on the mental health uh, of, of of blacks in the European in the European Union, the self worth. The, the ability to project and to dream for bigger things, uh, that's the, the, the much bigger impact, which, of course, the report doesn't necessarily, uh, is, isn't necessarily able to capture the, that, that kind of opportunity cost that is experienced, not just by, by Black communities across the European Union, but actually the European Union itself. So because this is also people with a lot of potential who aren't able to live that full potential because of discriminatory outcomes. The report surveyed more than 6,000 people across 13 countries. And 45% said they had experienced racial discrimination from your own experience. And you were just now talking about your, um, your, your circle of friends, family. Uh, were you surprised that it was 45%, that it was only 45%? What, what does this number tell you? I think it's probably good news that it's not more. But again, to what extent is, it, is there a lot of underreporting happening? I think there's probably... And also kind of what does each and every person think of as being discriminatory? So I think, you know, does, do people consider microaggressions to be discriminatory act, actions? And also, I think sometimes it's even even when you're a victim of it, you don't always realize that actually you're, you are a victim of it and that actually something discriminatory is, happening, is actually happening to you. Um, for me, for example, you know, have I been subject to racial profiling? Sometimes, I, if, if I don't think about it in more detail, I will, t- I will tell you, well, no, I haven't been, you know, racially profiled, and I haven't been able to, I haven't been left unable to access the labor market and those types of things. But then, if you dig a bit deeper and you you kind of go back into your into your past, you go like, well, actually, I have been witness to a lot of racial profiling. I have also been subject to it, but you just don't think about it because it happened a year or two years ago, and sometimes it's better to just leave it behind as opposed to to dwell upon it. So I think that there's also a bit of that happening as well, and that's perhaps not captured in the report. And can you tell us a bit more about that? Also, the microaggressions that you were you were just mentioning before, um, is it a case that it has become, a, I mean, for lack of a better word, uh, a better word a normalized because it just happens so frequently that um, people who experience this on a, on a daily basis just become desensitized to it? Uh, what, what is happening here? Yeah, I think there's definitely a better coping about it. So, I mean, the more... It's, it's like I was saying, you know, the more you dwell upon it, the, the, the less able you are to operate. And I think uh, one of the mechanisms, one of the, you know, the, the standard mechanism is just to ignore it and just to move forward and just to, and that's, I think that's something which a lot of us do uh, on a day in basis, you know, um, we, we stop commenting on things. So if you go, you know, you and I are working in, in a space in, in the Brussels bubble, which is a very white space. And I've stopped looking at around the room and, and realizing I'm often very, very often the only person of color in that room. Uh, sometimes talking about issues which are all about people of color, but yet I'm the only person in the room which is a person of color. So, so you have those kinds of things where you just, at some point, you stop commenting on it, even though it's very patently obvious. And what effect does it have that you are the only person of color in the room addressing and talking about issues that affect first and foremost people people of color and you are talking about these issues with with white people um it can be very dis- discouraging <laughs> it can be very discouraging but at the same time i think then you have um for, for those of us who are of persons of color who are in the brussels bubble who are um there's a sense of responsibility as well so and a sense of privilege that comes from that 
Um, it also means that there, there's a lot of pressure on, on activists uh, like me who, who always have to be perfect um, because of that. So, so there is definitely an additional level of pressure which, which all Blacks in many, different, in many different economic walks of life feel that sense of if we have to be perfect, not just for ourselves, but also to, you know, because we are the ones who have that responsibility of, of breaking those, uh, those glass ceilings for, for those who will follow us. And that's a, that's a big sense of responsibility and that sometimes weighs upon you, but sometimes it drives you forward. So, so there is strength that comes from it, but there's also sometimes discouragement that comes from it too. I'm wondering if it's fair, if, uh, for example, if you are the only person of color in the room, uh, in the sense representing and advocating for your community, is it fair that then all that responsibility fall, falls on your shoulders? It's a good question. I don't think about it too much. Um, yeah, I mean, it's... And for some people, it's too much. So, so I think you know, some if, if I mean, if, if, the, if the report looked at burnouts and those types of things within within Black communities, I think we could find that it's probably much more significant compared to others. And I think part of it would be explained by this particular situation of being often the only person in the room, and then often having to be the one who has to call out on the on the things, on the blind spots, on the on the comments, on the on the questions that you get, which are absolutely inappropriate or perhaps are not inappropriate, but are certainly ignorant. Um, so having to, to kind of always educate uh, becomes very tiresome uh, as, as time goes by. But at the same time, again, we, there is that sense of responsibility that if we're going to make a difference, uh, just abandoning doesn't change, doesn't change the world. And so we, we have that aspect as well with regards to, to that sense of responsibility. There was a 6% increase in uh, the number of people who reported being discriminated against since 2016, now until 2023. 20, uh, um, you touched upon this uh, briefly before. Do you think that we're, we're, what we're seeing is indeed a number, an increase in uh, instances of racism? Or is this an increase in uh, people reporting these this cases or being more outspoken about it? I think there is an increase. Um, and I think that increase is being provoked by the, the political environment in which we find ourselves. Um, we find ourselves in a, in a political environment where um, the European level, the European institutions used to be much more vocal in protecting and defending uh, minority groups. Um, I think if you look at the, Europe, the types of things that the European Commission would choose to, to challenge or would choose to condemn back in 2006 compared to now, uh, I think you'd be very surprised at the kind of things that we're now allowing to, to enter into a political discourse and particularly at the European level. So I think the, the political environment very much induces and very much condones much more overt forms of racism compared to before. Um, and also much more violent forms of racism as well. So I think that the, the the increase in racism is certainly present, is certainly alive, and that's not just a something which is con, which is um, confined to particular member states. I think it is uh, it is an, is an EU wide problem and phenomenon. Um, so I do think that 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 political environment, that un, that political unwillingness to really address and challenge racism in the way that we used to before, I think those types of things are very much contributing to that environment. And of course, we're, we're, we're coming out of, a, of a, an economic crisis. We're coming out of a health crisis, which have also exasperated um, that feeling of solidarity or lack of. So I think all of these things are very much combining to create an environment where indeed racism is becoming much more prevalent in society. And could you give some examples of ways that you see, if I understood what you said correctly, that the European Commission is um, 
helping and create this environment where racism is still very racism is still very much prevalent. Yeah, and, and I think it's for example, it's not calling to task certain member states who are or certainly applying uh, legislations or, or even adopting legislation which are clearly in violation of, of kind of the European Fundamental Charter of Rights, um, but also the the race the race equality directive. So we see member states themselves taking actions which are contrary to European law. It's actually contrary to European law, which has existed for over 20 years. So whether it be in Hungary, whether it be in Poland, whether it be in France, uh, in, in, in other kinds of member states, here we have some, you know, we have concrete examples where uh, the state is not taking its responsibilities in protecting minorities. Uh, we see the, the, the hesitation, the real hesitation that Scandinavian countries had when when the when the Quran was being burned uh, in, as a, as sent as an incitement to hatred, particularly of, of Muslim communities, and there the, the silence was deafening. The double standards uh, at Ukraine borders, when racialized groups were also trying to to flee, and again the, the European Union was very slow in condemning member states for creating a, a two a two string approach, where if you were white and Ukrainian, you were allowed in with open arms, but if you were Ukrainian of a different colors of skin. Then you are certainly not met with the same kind of uh, the same the same level of support and and that those types of things are certainly things where the EU has been very slow to respond or very weak in response. Another figure um, mentioned in the report is that only nine percent of those forty five people uh, who said they felt discriminated against actually uh, reported these cases. What do you think is behind this uh, massive number of underreporting? Is it a lack of trust in the police, of the justice system, of the institutions at large? Uh, yes, <laughs> absolutely. All of the above. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, clearly there is, um, amongst racialized communities, um, there is a, an ambivalent relationship with the state, uh, whether that is earned or not, whether it's true or not. There is certainly always an ambivalence as to whether, um, you know, as to whether the state will always will have the backs of racialized communities. And if you if you look at certain discourses, I think that that distrust can can often be justified. So, so there is certainly a lack of trust there. Um, also, the police authorities have often been uh, at the the sharp edge of of over policing, of racial profiling. Of discriminatory actions towards particular communities. So, so again, that does not engender uh, a feeling of trust, and certainly not a feeling of trust when it comes to particularly discrimination and racism and reporting those types of things. I think the third aspect is around whether existing legislation are being implemented with the same level of ferocity as other aspects. And I think there again, uh, we see that there's lots of lots of complaints which are around racism. Just don't get followed up. Don't get actually investigated. And uh, and if they are investigated, it takes a long time for the justice system to actually come with a judgment. And often those judgments end up being very slight slaps on the wrist. So all those types of things, I think, indeed create a situation where there is very low levels of trust as to whether the justice system, the pol police authorities and, and public authorities really will take the necessary actions to protect the communities that are also part of their responsibilities. So the main message of this report is that the racism in Europe is at uh, an all-time high, if I can put it this way. Do you think that there is uh, a mismatch between uh, the public perception of uh, racism in Europe and what now the report says that it is actually increasing? I think in some corners of European society, yes. In some European corners of society, no. So I think there is, as I mentioned at the beginning, I, I think there is a heightened awareness around the importance of topics like equity, equality, justice, and those types of things. So I think there is some 
increase in awareness, but does that translate in terms of society being more equitable, more just, and those types of things? No, I think here there's definitely a lot more work to be done. Uh, and I think the report is, is an important moment, it's an important wake-up call for Europe to really evaluate whether the existing legal legal framework that exists, so the, the race equality directive, the legislation that have been put in place, which have been, you know, they're, they're quite dated, they're from 20 years ago. There's definitely strong need for us to explore how society has evolved, how the different specific manifestations are actually being experienced by racialized people, and whether the law is actually reflecting those realities and is actually enabling individuals to really to protect and to ensure that their rights are enforced. I think there's that element which still needs to be worked on. And then the other aspect is really around, you know, is there enough actual funding going into civil society organizations which are tasked with championing the causes of racialized minorities? Are they sufficiently present and accounted for in European legislation? And is there enough mainstreaming happening? So whilst we have, uh, you know, thanks to Black Lives Matters, we have certain kind of new initiatives at the European level, the European Action, uh, the, the European Action Plan Against Racism, the denomination of of a race of of, the, of an anti-racism coordinator for the first time in this legislature. There's a lot of kind of initiatives that have been put in place, but I don't think the necessary political will and support has really been given to these these new mechanisms to actually allow them to achieve their full effect uh, when it comes to the legal framework, when it comes to the policy aspects, and also when it comes to connecting with the grassroots to ensure that that work is really being driven and embedded in the grassroots level as well. Uh, we have also seen in Europe a rise in uh, anti-Semitism and anti-Muslim hate. This, uh, of course, is uh, very much tied with the recent crisis and escalation of crisis in the Middle East. But do you see a connection between these acts of, of, of racism, which they are at the end? Do you see this as being fueled by the extremist parties or is the connection working the other way around? There's certainly common roots. Um, I think there, and, and indeed, the, you know, the rise of extremism in Europe uh, is not helping the situation. And indeed, uh, extremism is looking for a scapegoat, and often that scapegoat tends to be racialized communities, particularly uh, Muslim communities and, and Jewish communities. And I think here, there is definitely a strong link. Uh, clearly, the situation in the Middle East is not helping the situation, and, and there's very much this, this import effect the seeking place of the political situation with Gaza and with Israel being really important by the, in, and also into the communities in Europe, but also then the scapegoating at the European level with these communities as well. So I think there's really this kind of double aspect which is take, taking place in an environment which has already been fueled uh, by extremism already. I think there's also a... Uh, in, in Europe, there is this hesitation to accept our historical role in creating and fostering these environments. The... Palestine and Israel conflict cannot be disconnected with the role that Europe has played. We are the ones who created the situation that is taking place in Israel and Palestine. And yet Europe has a tendency to want to forget that part and just kind of focus on, on the current day. And I think without having that historical lens, without having that historical acceptance of the role that Europe has played in creating and fostering this environment, whether it be in the Middle East, but also here in Europe itself, then I think we'll struggle to actually find the right uh, the right words, the right mechanisms, the right frameworks, the right policies to really address the root causes of racism and to ensure that the future future generations do not have to live under that scope and that scourge. I, I guess that a very common response to why taking such an historical perspective to how racism plays out in Europe, uh, I'm sure you you keep hearing this, but, uh, but in any case, uh, if you could answer me the question of why, why does it matter still, the... 
the weight of colonialism, why does it matter five centuries later? Because in essence, we're still living with the effects of it. And actually, colonialism has, has kind of found a more modern approach to it, but hasn't actually really gone away. So, you know, we still have very strong uh, economic interests in, in European economic interests, which are still playing their full parts in, in African society, for example, and still continue to essentially perpetuate the colonial, uh, colonial approaches. We also have to, to realize that a lot of our structures, a lot of our systems, even our vocabulary has been essentially influenced and informed by colonial thinking. Uh, and that colonial thinking continues to, to permeate within European society. Also, the, the effect, the generational, the multi-generational impact of colonialism is still being felt today. So the fact that certain communities were not able to own property for so long means that, that they have no property to give to the generations that, that's future. And that is almost a cumulative effect that we still continue to feel today. And so that's why it's so important to understand those colonial roots, not for blame, but really to understand how the situation of today came to be, and also why it's so important then to have a different lens to, to enable to create a more equitable outcome. That is why it's so important to have that, that understanding of the past, that full understanding of the past, so that we can really ensure that we don't repeat the same mistakes moving forward. And how do we translate that into policymaking? What is in our advocating in this respect? How do we correct these wrongs? So for us, one of the aspects that we're very much focusing on is to understand that there is a racial dimension across all policy fields, and sometimes in policy fields that you would not expect to actually have a racial dimension. Um, so for us, it's around mainstreaming that, 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 that element, that lens, and using that intersectional lens across all the policy fields. So I, I'll give you some examples where you might not expect, you know, kind of racism to, to rear its ugly head, and yet somehow it's very much embedded in that. One of them is, for example, in climate, climate justice, so the whole climate change agenda. We, we issued a, and published a report which very much talked about how actually to understand kind of the climate change, to understand how to make sure that the, the measures that we have to put in place can be fully adopted by everyone. We also have to understand that actually a lot of the racial, a lot of the racial injustices also play out in the way, for example, power plants. Where are they located? The, the NIMBY effect. Ra power plants are often located in, the, in communities where the least political resistance takes place. And where are those least those communities often placed? Well, it's often Roma communities, racialized communities. So they're the ones who often have, you know, very polluting kind of industries and um, and electrical power plants and those types of things in their in their back in their backyards. That has a health impact. That has an, a, a strong health impact that has a strong dimension uh, with regards to, to to climate change. So when we're talking about climate change, those that dimensions have to be taken into account to really be able to actually address and create an equitable um, an equitable climate change policy. So that's one example. We have examples of that, like in artificial intelligence and in other fields. Uh, we're, we're very much looking at, for example, ESG reporting. So, so these are interesting places where actually having a racial lens can be very helpful to also understand how to ensure that the legislation is more favorable and is, is adopted by all society, but also to understand where the impact is being most felt today and most likely to be felt tomorrow as well. I'm I'm really pleased that you you brought up these issues because uh, we at Friends of Europe are working towards renewing the Europe Social Contract. Uh, that's our big project until 2030. And some of the areas we are actually focusing on are just climate and digital transition, reducing inequality, and improving social mobility. And um, I actually wanted to ask you what uh, could if you could think about some policy proposals. But I, I think you'd actually just answer my question. 
Um, keeping in mind the upcoming European Commission, of course, we can't lose sight of the European elections next next year, but also national governments to achieve some of these goals. For us, we have I think we have some of the tools. So in essence, we have, for example, the, the, the European Action Plan Against Racism, which is intended to be a tool which on the one hand sets uh, ambitions and objectives at the European level to address some of the some of the problems of discrimination, and at the same time tries to champion a horizontal lens about it. So really across across policy perspective, what we see as a problem at the moment is that these these pieces of legislation are not being taken enough seriously by member states and by the European level. And what I'd love to see is a much more is an approach that used to be championed actually in the education policy, being actually championed for for the action plan against racism, which with actual common targets and, and indicators which are being actually used and which would actually you know apply across all the different policy fields which, which Europe has as its responsibility, which could also then be translated at the national level as well. So the European approach at the moment has a European action plan against racism and then has national action plans, which each of the member states needs to report. But it's all voluntary. So which means that we have very weak documents which are not being, which are not, there's very little consultation of racialized communities as part of that, very little participation. And so we have this legislation, these documents, which all sound great, but nobody knows about, uh, and which are very, which lack ambition. So for us, I think in the next kind of legislature, we want to see these documents being elevated in stature, being seen, being, uh, and, and really being linked and tied to, to binding indicators and a real sense of, uh, of ownership of both the communities which are concerned but also by politicians and political leaders, and of course, uh, the, the rest of society. So I think those are the kinds of mechanisms which enable us to, to set objectives, set ambitions, but also ensure that they're embedded across all the policy fields where they need to be embedded. Mm -hmm. So what do you think it's the way forward? Because uh, what uh, the report described is that racism affects uh, all walks of life of people of color. We tackle different, very specific areas that uh, are, need, are needing intervention. Um, but then my question is, um, do we, how do we go about it? Do we address each one of these specific areas with specific policies or what is needed is a more holistic and global approach to tackle the, this bigger issue? It has to be holistic. So I, I think here we really have to, to Europe has to, to, has to change its, it has to enable a paradigm shift with regards to how we understand and we address racism. And if it's a systemic issue, it can't be addressed as a, a, a tiny niche area, which is being, which is kind of stuck in, in DG justice. It has to be something which is much more holistic, it has to be something which is much more and much higher in the political awareness and the political will. And so for us, it's, it's why we really are championing an approach which indeed takes into account that this is a systemic issue. It's a structural issue. It's an issue which affects each and every DG and each and every DG needs to take ownership in addressing it from their perspective. Uh, that's the only way that we're going to be able to actually see a systemic change across all the fields. And indeed, as the report highlights, it, it affects all walks of life. And so if you're only going to be addressing it in one particular corner of, of the European institutions, it's never going to work. Kim, thank you so much. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you so much and see you soon.